The prophet Ezekiel knew all about death. He had witnessed firsthand the death of a kingdom, the death of a city, the death of a temple, the death of a people, the death of a covenant, indeed the death of a dream. The Babylonians with their vast armies had destroyed everything when they had invaded and crushed the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. But the fact of the matter is that Israel was dead long before that. A steady stream of wicked kings, godless rulers, and the incessant idolatry that plagued the nation from its very inception had left Israel rather like a rattled harlot waiting to die of the disease ravaging her body from years of illicit liaisons with foreign gods. At least that's the metaphor the Lord himself used in the prophet Hosea. The Babylonians had only brought about the inevitable putting the nation of Israel out of her misery. And now those who languished in exile, like Ezekiel in Babylon, were left with no city, no temple, no homeland, no nation, no hope. Death reigned in Israel. And it was into that darkness that the prophet had a vision. In Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1, he testifies, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Alright, so this is not just any valley, this is a graveyard. This is the valley of death. Verse 2, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Ezekiel is looking at a mass grave. This had long ago been a valley of slaughter, and no one had cared to bury the corpses. The flesh had long since rotted away and been picked over by Vultures, scavengers. So you can, in your mind's eye, you can picture what Ezekiel saw. The wind-swept valley full of dry bones, bleached white in the scorching Middle Eastern sun. These were the remains of the people Israel. The covenant people of God. Verse 3, and he said to me, son of man... Can these bones live? Can these bones live? It has obviously been years since they were alive. No, they can't live. They're dead. And yet the prophet sensed that the Lord knew something that he himself did not know. And so he answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause 
breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And just as God had formed the first man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so God would recreate his covenant people, formed by the word of his power, fashioned in his own image, regenerated by his own breath, the ruach, the spirit of God. Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked And behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, to the ruach, to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And so it was that as the prophet proclaimed the word of God and the power of the Spirit, that the valley of death came to life. And Ezekiel saw standing there before him an innumerable company of redeemed saints. But what did it all mean? Well, the Lord interpreted the vision for his prophet. Verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. The promise was clear and it was astounding through Sheer mercy and sovereign grace. The power of the Spirit and the preached Word. God was going to create for Himself a people for His own possession. A people alive from the dead. A people in whom His Spirit would dwell. A people whom He would bring into the everlasting land of their inheritance. Verse 23. The Lord says of this multitude, this army, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God and my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. 
They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I shall set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Now, you are a new covenant, New Testament people. You are a people of the book. Surely, Surely you can see in that last paragraph the promise of the new covenant. It's all over the New Testament. And it's all over the book of Revelation. God promised His prophet that He was going to create a people, a covenant people, a cleansed people, a consecrated people, a redeemed people, an exceedingly great army. And he was going to do it out of dead, dry bones. What Ezekiel saw as a future promise while in exile in the land of Babylon, John sees in Revelation 14, 1-5 as a present reality. This vision of the Lamb and the 144,000 is the fifth vision in this third vision cycle known as the seven symbolic histories which spans Revelation 12 to 14. I want to read the vision again with Ezekiel 37 as the backdrop and then I'm going to point out several points of contact between Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones and John's vision of the lamb and the 144,000. I think it's the same vision. I wonder if you'll see it too. John says, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Four points of contact between Revelation 14, the vision of the 144,000 and the Lamb, and Ezekiel 37 in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. There are more than four points of contact, but I'm just going to restrain myself to four for the sake of time. Number one, in Ezekiel 37, when the dry bones had been reformed into bodies and then revived by the Spirit of life, Ezekiel says that what he saw was an exceedingly great army. Well, likewise, John in Revelation 14 sees standing with the Lamb on top of Mount Zion, 144,000 who had the name of the Lamb and of His Father upon their foreheads. Now, we've seen this group before, haven't we? We saw them in Revelation chapter 7, where their role was called by tribe. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we saw in Revelation chapter 7 
that what John is seeing in highly symbolic form in the first half of Revelation 7 is the same group that he sees in the second half of Revelation 7 from a different perspective. The 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are one and the same as the innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered around the throne and before the Lamb singing his praise, singing the songs of redemption, saying, salvation belongs to the Lord as they're clothed in their white robes. It's the same group. And I'm not going to rehearse all of the reasons for why that is. I'll refer you to our website if you're new to our study of Revelation and the the approach that we're taking to Revelation, which I believe with all my heart to be the right and only approach. Revelation chapter 7, there's a sermon on the website entitled, The Saints Who Stand Before the Throne. And in that sermon, I'll walk you through the verbal links between Revelation 3, 12, 5, 9, and 10, 7, 1, and 8, 7, 9 to 17, 9, 4, 14, 1 to 5, our passage for today, and then 22, 4, among others, and we're going to see that it's the same group in each and every passage described in different ways to highlight different characteristics. So this 144,000 that we see in Revelation 14, 1 to 5 is the same group that we saw in Revelation 7, 1 to to 8, which is the same group as the innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in the second half of Revelation 7. Those who were gathered around the throne, clothed in white robes, dwelling in the Lord's presence as the Lamb shepherds them to the springs of the waters of life. Just like God promised that his son David would do back in Ezekiel 37. And the reason why I call this company in in Revelation 14 an army is because I think that's the way John shows them to us in Revelation 7, 5 to 8. That listing of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel strongly resembles the census lists from the book of Numbers where the purpose was to organize Israel into military divisions that would then go on to conquer the promised land. So I conclude that what we have in Revelation 14, 1-5, is an exceedingly great army of reformed, redeemed, revived saints, purchased by the blood of the Lamb and ready to inherit the land which... The Lord our God is giving us. That is the new heavens and the new earth. Second point of contact. Speaking of the land, you'll notice that the 144,000 are standing atop Mount Zion. And you remember that in Ezekiel 37, the promise of God to Ezekiel was this. Ezekiel 37, 12. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. They've been scattered abroad into the various kingdoms of the earth, into the diaspora. And he says, I'm going to bring you back into the land of Israel when, when I establish this new covenant with you. It's what he's doing in this age. He is going out into the kingdom of this world and he is rescuing ransomed sinners. 
And he is bringing them spiritually now and physically in the age to come into the promised land, the land of our inheritance, which he promised to our father Abraham and to all those who share the faith of Abraham. A little bit later in Ezekiel 37, he said, They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be prince there forever. So God's promise would be fulfilled when he brought his redeemed people into not a temporal geopolitical land, but an everlasting land, evidently. An everlasting land of their inheritance, which in the new covenant, and this is most definitely a new covenant promise, does not refer merely to a little geographic strip of land in the, in the Mediterranean but rather refers to the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Zion which is above. You want to check that, go read Hebrews 11 and 12. Thus that John sees the 144,000 on Zion with the Lamb shows that what John is seeing is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. Third point of contact. These 144,000 on Mount Zion, they're standing before the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, who is the everlasting heir of the throne of David. This is the meaning of God's promise to Ezekiel. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Beloved, who is that talking of but the Lord Jesus Christ? That promise is fulfilled in Christ, the Son of David, the Lamb of God, the Shepherd King of Israel. And fourth point of contact. In Revelation 14.4, John says that the 144,000 have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Which does not mean that they are literally celibate. Because the Bible never presents the sexual relationship between a husband and wife within the context of the sanctity of the marriage covenant as something defiling. Not defiling, it's holy. So there's something else going on here. Two things I think are going on. Number one, John, who is steeped in the Old Testament, writing to a people steeped in the Old Testament, is using some imagery from the Mosaic Law. He's presenting this army of 144,000 as consecrated and ready for the battle which is to come. See, according to the law of Moses, Israel's soldiers had to maintain a ceremonial purity and celibacy in preparation for the holy war that was looming as they conquered the land. Deuteronomy 23, 9-11, 1 Samuel 21, 5, 2 Samuel 11, 8. Secondly, though, John is using the image symbolically of their abstaining from idolatry. How many times in the Old Testament is idolatry symbolically pictured as adultery, as sexual immorality? So what John says when he sees this multitude, which I've identified as the, as the entire multitude of the redeemed saints of the new covenant, John says, they have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. What he's saying is they haven't fornicated with the whore of Babylon. That's the imagery he's using and going to continue to use throughout the remainder of the book. 
See, throughout the Bible, even in the letters of Revelation, involvement in pagan idolatry is often spoken of in sexual terms. So John here is presenting the saints as the pure and consecrated followers of the Lamb. Vastly different than the diseased and defiled consorts of the harlot of Babylon. This is precisely the way God used a very similar word in Ezekiel 37.25 of that redeemed, reformed, revived army of Israel. He said, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And what John sees is the fulfillment of this promise. These are the consecrated, cleansed, redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ezekiel's exceedingly great army will be cleansed of the defilement of idolatry and therefore consecrated wholeheartedly to the Lord, that is, to David's greater son, to the Lamb, to follow Him wherever He goes. So what we have in in Revelation 14, 1-5 is the exceedingly great army of Ezekiel 37. A redeemed, reformed, revived company of holy warriors assembled before their captain, who is Christ the Lamb, ready to follow Him wherever He goes, That is, in the chapters to come, into battle. Ready to follow him into holy war against the beast and all of his forces. That's what John's doing. Isaac Watts, one of the great hymn writers of the English language. He was a great hymnist, pastor, theologian in 17th and 18th century England. You probably know him as the author of the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous cross. He was thinking of this passage in Revelation 14 when he wrote these words. You can find it in older hymnals. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight. I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. In that hymn, Isaac Watts is wrestling through what it means to be a part of this army. What does it mean to be a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And that's the question I would pose to us this morning. I think we would do well to consider it. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Are you a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? When John looked and saw the 144,000 standing before the Lamb on Mount Zion, did he see you? That's the question. How do you know? 
Well, what are the characteristics that John gives of this multitude that he sees? What are the characteristics of one who has been raised out of the valley of dry bones by the power of the word of God, revived by the spirit of God? One who has joined the ranks of the ransomed saints. I see five characteristics in these texts. And these are mirrors. These are five mirrors for you to look in and see if your reflection matches what you see. Five characteristics of the followers of the Lamb. Number one, they are owned by Christ. They are owned by Christ. So having been purchased at the cost of his blood, Jesus owns them. Twice in this passage, John says that this group has been redeemed, agorazzo, purchased. In 14.3, he says, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed, purchased from the earth. And in 14.4, These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. This is the same word that was used back in Revelation 5, 9 and 10. The same phrase, redeemed, purchased for God. When the elders are singing their new song, singing to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed, you redeemed, you purchased. Men from every tribe and language and people and nation. So these 144,000 redeemed for God are the same as the innumerable multitude of saints that the elders saw in Revelation 5 that had been redeemed for God at the cost of the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed out of the earth, redeemed out of the kingdoms of this world, redeemed out of our exile in Babylon where we were slaves of sin and slaves of Satan, captives in Babylon and purchased at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb who was slain. But notice that there's a purchase for our, or there's a purpose for our redemption. We aren't just purchased for nothing. They were purchased for God and for the Lamb. Christ bought us in order to own us. The Lamb purchased our freedom from slavery with His blood of the cross in order that He might turn us into soldiers and in order that the Father might turn us into sons. So these saints in Revelation 14, these soldiers of the cross, are owned by Christ and by His Father, which is why they have the name of Christ and of His Father on their foreheads. This is the mark of ownership. It's like the tattoos or the brandings on slaves and soldiers in the Roman era. It's not a visible mark, but rather represents the seal of the Holy Spirit Upon the souls of the redeemed. By which the people of God are sealed and protected and preserved in faith to the very end. So that they receive the reward which Christ purchased for them in his death. They receive their reward as conquering soldiers. They receive their inheritance as beloved sons. 
So this is mark number one of the soldier of the cross. They have a deep sense of being owned by Christ. They have a deep sense that they are not their own, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. They have been bought with a price, and therefore, they honor or glorify God in their bodies. They know that they are owned. Do you? Do you live with this deep inward sense that I am not my own? I am owned. Christ purchased me, and I belong to Him. Soldiers of the cross do. It's what keeps them fighting in the battle. Secondly, the second thing that catches John's attention when he looks upon this regimented company standing in formation before the Lamb is the thunderous worship that erupts from their ranks. They are singing a new song, a song of victory, a song of redemption. And I heard a loud voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And if you trace the voice through this passage... Described in verse 2 like the roaring of many waters and the sound of loud thunder and harpists playing on their harps. You'll soon find that it's the same as in verse 3, the they who are singing a new song. Which then ties in with the 144,000 who alone are able to sing the new song. In other words, the soldiers are singing and their worship is thunderous. And it's glorious like the sound of many harps playing together. The soldiers are so enthralled with the Lamb and with His sacrifice and with their blood-bought redemption that they worship and they can't help but worship because their hearts are filled with praise for the glory of God's grace displayed in the redemption won by the blood of the Lamb. So this is the second mark of a soldier of the cross. Test yourself. They worship Christ. Their worship is unified. It is one voice. It is loud like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. It is glorious like many harps. It is heavenly before the throne, the four living creatures and the elders. And it's known only by those who have this shared experience of grace and the joy of sin forgiven through faith in the blood of Christ. Third, they are consecrated to Christ. John says in verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. And we saw earlier how this was an allusion to the warriors of Israel consecrating themselves to the Lord in preparation for the holy war that was about to come. And so in the context of Revelation, it probably carries the idea of not being defiled with idolatry. Not being defiled with liaisons with the prostitute of Babylon. These soldiers live with a singular devotion to the mission and to their Messiah. A singular devotion to the cause and to their commander. 
They have purified themselves for the battle. They've consecrated themselves for the war in stark contrast to the defiled and debauched followers of the beast who make up the people of this world. It is this wartime consecration that Paul commended to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he said, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets himself entangled in civilian affairs because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What does that mean? To be a good soldier of Christ, to share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ, not being entangled in civilian affairs. What does that mean? I would commend to every one of you a a book. You know if you've been here at any length of time whatsoever, that Dr. John Piper has had an enormous impact on my life and theology and worldview. And his seminal book, foundational book, was entitled Desiring God. And I hope you'll read the whole thing. But if you only read one chapter, I hope you'll read the chapter on money. Because in there, he says, how should Christians whose joy is Christ and not the things of this world, how should Christians relate to money? And he commends to the readers a wartime lifestyle which soldiers of Christ ought to adopt so as to avoid the defilements and entanglements of the world. He writes this, quote, There is war going on. All talk of a Christian's right to live luxuriously, quote, as a child of the king, end quote, in this atmosphere sounds shallow, especially when the king himself is stripped for battle. It is more helpful to think of a wartime lifestyle than merely a simple lifestyle. Simplicity can be very inwardly directed and may benefit no one else, but a wartime lifestyle implies that there is a great and worthy cause for which to spend and be spent. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, end quote. He goes on to relate it, and some of you, a few of you will remember the days of World War II when not just the soldiers on the field, but the citizens at home lived on rations and were glad to do it because... There was a great and worthy cause to be fought. And Piper says, you know what, the church? The church should take a cue from the 1940s generation. Living on rations. With a wartime lifestyle because there is a battle that is great and worthy to be fought and won. Luxury comes later. War is now. And soldiers of Christ Jesus know it. The soldier knows he is at war, and he lives his life accordingly. He's consecrated himself to his commander and to the battle. He lives in a state of readiness. He lives in a state of training. He stays on post, as it were, so that when the call comes, he's not found on leave in Babylon. Fourth, and following closely on that point, the saints are sanctified in Christ. John says in verse 5 that in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. 
And that's almost a direct quote to Isaiah 53, 9 with reference to the suffering servant who is Jesus. It says, there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no deceit in the mouth of the suffering servant who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no deceit in the mouth of the saints. Do you see what's happened? The soldiers have taken on the character of their captain. The saints have taken on the character of their Savior. They are being conformed into His image and are found, therefore, to be men and women of integrity, men and women of holiness. And I'll say this once and I'll say it a thousand times. If you're not in the pursuit of integrity and holiness, you don't belong to Him. You're not a soldier of the cross. This is the fourth mark of a soldier of Christ. They take on the character of their captain. There's been a transformation. We know what that word means now, right? After the summer. There's been a transformation since their redemption by grace, through faith, not by the strivings of their own will, but by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. They live a life in the pursuit of integrity and holiness and purity and righteousness. And though their righteousness is not perfect in this age, it is purposeful and it is real. There is a real difference between the citizens of Zion and the citizens of Babylon. And in the age to come, they will stand on Mount Zion before the Lamb. Jude 24 says, blameless with great joy. And Revelation 19.8 says, clothed in the splendor of holiness. Fifth and finally, the saints follow Christ. In one of the iconic lines from Revelation, John says in the middle of verse 4, they follow the Lamb their captain, their commander. They follow him wherever he goes. Quick question. Where do lambs go? They go to the place of sacrifice. They go to the place of slaughter. This lamb went to a cross. And so he says, hear the word of the Lord. If anyone Doesn't sound to me like there's exceptions, does it it to you? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So the soldier of Christ follows his captain down what Piper calls the Calvary road of sacrifice and suffering. You heard that in Isaac Watts' hymn. Piper writes, What a tragic waste when people turn away from the Calvary road of love and suffering. All the riches of the glory of God in Christ are on that road. All the sweetest fellowship with Jesus is there. All the treasures of assurance are there. All the ecstasies of joy. All the clearest sightings of eternity. All the noblest camaraderies. All the humblest affections. All the most tender acts of forgiving kindness. All the deepest discoveries of God's word. They're not found in the palaces of luxury. They're found on the road of suffering. 
all the most earnest prayers, they are all on the Calvary Road where Jesus walks with his people. So take up your cross and follow Jesus on this road and on this road alone. Life is Christ and death is gain. Life on every other road, Piper writes, is wasted. So the soldiers of Christ don't waste their life in the pursuit of lesser things like comfort, ease, meaningless pursuits that are wood, hay, and stubble, and on the day of judgment will simply be burned up. Rather, they pour out their lives in sacrifice and suffering, and in many cases in death, believing that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that's why they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So Isaac Watts posed the question, and I pose the question to you and to me this morning. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I among those once dry bones that have been redeemed, reformed, revived by the word of God's power? An exceedingly great army in the Lord. Test yourselves. And as we close, I want to give you some questions for your prayerful reflection. So what I want you to do, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes as best as you can, get alone with God, and lay bare your heart before the Holy Spirit. Take off the mask. Take off the cloak. Alone before God. Ask your soul these questions. Do I live with a deep sense of being owned by Christ? Do Paul's words, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, ring true in your heart and in your life? Do you live under the conscious, joyful knowledge Christ Jesus is Lord of me? Or would it be fair to say that you live your life as your own master, making your own rules, deciding for yourself what is best and right and true? Question number two, for you to evaluate your heart in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do I live a life of worship to Christ? Is there deep within my soul a desire and burden born of an experience of grace that compels me to sing joyfully the songs of the redeemed, the songs of thunderous praise to the Lamb? What is your worship like? Or, is your heart dry and dead towards Christ more often than not as you come in here and mumble through the words of verses and refrains? Question number three. 
Do I live a wartime lifestyle of consecration to Christ? Am I, in Paul's words, a good soldier of Christ Jesus who doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits? Can I say that my life is marked by a singular devotion, a consuming passion, a state of readiness like a soldier on post at a time of war? Or, to borrow the metaphors of Revelation 17 and 18, if the Lord were to come, would I be found in the brothels of Babylon in terms of what I watch? Where I go, what I do, the company I keep. Question number four. Does my life show evidence of sanctification, of transformation, of being conformed into the image of Christ so that I'm coming increasingly to look like my captain? Is my life increasingly marked by the pursuit of integrity, purity, holiness, righteousness, increasingly by experiences of victory over sin, or if I were honest, is my life indistinct from the citizens of Babylon, the followers of the beast, having the same hopes, the same dreams, the same desires, the same motivations, the same entertainments, test yourself. Finally, are you walking the Calvary road of sacrifice in the service of love? Are you driven by the desire to know and to gain Christ, to glorify Him in life and in death no matter the cost? Or is your life driven by another pursuit? The desire for comfort, ease, prestige, fame, pleasure of this world. Security. Beloved, with your eyes closed, I want to tell you. John looked and he saw the multitude of the saints and they bore these characteristics. Now, if these characteristics are not found in your life. I want you to know. That there is grace for you. In Jesus. So if that's you, you say, they're not there. And I don't think they've ever been there. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to know that Christ Jesus died for sinners like you. I want you to come to Jesus in helplessness. And cry out to him and say, I want to belong to you. I want to be owned by you inside and out. I want to be a soldier who follows you wherever you go. Change my heart. Forgive my sin. Cry out to Jesus and you will find him gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and one who forgives iniquities and transgressions and sins because his blood is sufficient to save any citizen of Babylon From any defilement. And for many of you. Maybe discouraged by this time of evaluation. I want you to know this. 
If you see evidences of grace in you, then you be assured that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Christ Jesus died to make it so. So you repent. Confess the areas where you are living off post, as it were. And you ask the Spirit of God that blew through the valley of dry bones to come and blow through your heart again and renew your devotion to the war and to your captain. Regardless of which state you find yourself in this morning, do not be hopeless. Christ Jesus is gracious and his blood is sufficient. And we are going to come to his table to see a sign that he is so. Let me pray for you. Our Father, you have given us a glorious picture of your redeemed saints in this age and in the age to come. And I pray that by your grace, the Spirit of God will come blowing from the four winds of the earth and sweep through this valley of dry bones this morning. And that bone will connect to bone and sinews will come and flesh will come and the Spirit of life will come and there will be raised an exceedingly great army before the Lord. Come and have your way in the hearts of this people. I pray. Amen.